Hello, this is Dr. Dan Guerra. I come to you from Authentic Biochemistry Studios in the Inland Pacific Northwest of the USA. I'm doing this podcast today because I have nothing better to do, which means I have all the reason in the world to do it. So we've been talking for the last two months on aging and the immune system. And I promised you that I was going to do a really deep dive into metabolism in the immune system. Now, what I mean by that is two levels. One is metabolism in the entire aging system. That is the whole body, periphery, central nervous system, muscle, solid organs, and all of the potential um, dysfunctions that can occur over time. That's one element. And we've talked about this many other times in the past. I generally call that pathophysiology, and more importantly, for purposes of our podcast, pathobiochemistry. But I want to focus more on the metabolism within the immune cells themselves. And we're going to get deep into that, probably not this episode, but I'm setting the stage for it. So in order to do that, we have to go back and talk about a nucleotide that we spent some time on already when we discussed chronobiology. And that nucleotide is NAD, nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide. And so we're going to get back into that. And then I'm going to use that as a platform to talk about the very fundamental energetics of the cell. Because we need to get back into straight form biochemistry. So when I leap into the immune cells, particularly T lymphocytes, I won't lose the audience. So again, Dr. Dan Guerra, today's the 17th of December, 2020. So from a paper published in Journal of Biomedical Sciences in 2019, volume 26, I'll put this in the show notes. The following can be learned. They tell us that metabolic syndrome is a dyslipidemic or dyslipidemic chronic aging sedentary lifestyle constellation of disease presentations. And that includes metabolic disorganization. More on that later. Also, um, metabolic syndrome has many of the earmarks of prodromal type 2 diabetes. There's also a prominent connection to hypertension. Usually when a person first presents with hypertension, a couple of uh, blood panel tests can determine whether or not you have metabolic syndrome. And most prominently, metabolic syndrome prodromal type 2 diabetes, are, are associated with two key factors, overeating and obesity. So metabolic syndrome, I call METSIN, is often a prolegomena to cardiovascular disease, cancer, and neurodegeneration, all of which plague the elderly. So high caloric density, soluble carbohydrate nutrition, a lack of fasting, and a species-specific metabolic inability to convert fatty acids into glucose via gluconeogenesis provides the pathobiochemical poise toward METSIN. The energy charge of the cell, which we're going to get into a little bit here this morning, includes molar concentration ratios of AMP to ADP and ADP to ATP, and they help regulate, that is, the signature of those molecular ratios quantitatively help to regulate anabolic and catabolic telos through such enzymes uh, as the AMP-activated protein kinase, AMP kinase. 
As I extensively reviewed recently in authentic biochemistry, mTOR is an anabolic rheostat. Remember that um, when we get into the details in a few minutes here. And that mTOR, which is the target of rapamycin, it's the name of the protein, <clears throat> recognizes multiple signaling domains, including the kinases phosphatidylinositol 3 kinase and the AKT. It also recognizes that as mTOR, free pools of amino acid levels plus transfer RNAs and isoaccepting transfer RNA synthetases, all of which are related to translational machinery. Finally, mTOR can also recognize messenger RNA abundance, and that's going to be in association with fully assembled polyribosomal complexes, all of which are going to act as a translational kinase circuit for polypeptide synthesis. Now, the purine nucleotide nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide has been thoroughly described as a key metabolite in energy metabolism. We discussed redox status in both ADP ribose-mediated PARP DNA repair, and we discussed deacetylation and deacylation of numerous signaling, metabolic, and chromatin remodeling epigenetic events, all of which are linked to cell fate and all of which can be recognized or mapped onto the aging system. Now, in a very rough way, let me explain something to you. You have the nutritional components, the alamino acid tryptophan, niacin, nicotinamide mononucleotide, and nicotinamide riboside. All four of those metabolites can be converted to NAD. NAD then is responsible for controlling, regulating as a cofactor and as a coenzyme for redox reactions, for example, in the electron transport chain, for sirtuins, for example, in the deacetylation of histones, and for PARPs. Remember, those are polyadenosylribophosphates. Remember that PARPs are related to a specific DNA repair mechanism. And so an active DNA repair system is important for uh, uh, genome integrity, but an active PARP-associated DNA repair mechanism for tumor cells will enhance tumorogenesis. And remember, tumorogenesis is the push-pull mechanism, neurodegeneration versus tumorogenesis, as the aging system continues on. So redox reactions, sirtuins and PARPs are also linked or, and directly linked to NAD metabolism. We talked about this not that long ago. Now, redox, sirtuins and PARPs, what do they do? They're involved in energy metabolism, DNA repair, obviously, gene expression, because sirtuins control chromatin remodeling directly and indirectly, and also immediate and mediated cellular stress responses. Now, because there is that very carefully organized activation system using NAD, energy metabolism, DNA repair, gene expression, cellular stress responses can also lead directly to, when there's an overshoot or an undershoot, metabolic diseases such as metabolic syndrome, 
And of course, those are associated with type 2 diabetes, dyslipidemia, um, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, which we spend a great deal of time on, and central obesity, right? So here are a couple of things that we mentioned last time that I'm sure you may have, uh, well, you, you wouldn't mind having a, uh, a little jog of your memory for. NAD levels decline with age and obesity. Decreased NAD levels suppress the, and this is circulating NAD, something you can measure in the clinic, you see. And you're gonna see why that can be, that could be grossly over-exaggerating NAD levels in any particular cellular matrix. Anyways, decreased NAD levels suppress the activities of NAD-dependent enzymes, for example, in oxidative phosphorylation, the TCA cycle, and glycolysis. And all of that can ultimately, because you can't regenerate NAD from, NA, uh, from NADH, for example, could result in lower ATP production. Remember, you have a NAD, NADH, which is a redox poise, but you also have NAD nation synthesis, which is also necessary because you need a certain amount of, you need a certain molar concentration of NAD to carry out all these processes. And each of those enzyme complexes that use it, for example, the PARP system is going to have a different KM4 NAD than let's say SIR2 and 3, okay? So lowering the NAD levels, which would diminish SIR2 activity, may likewise provide benefit in cells where an active transcription is necessary, as with T lymphocytes, engaging in active pathogenesis, thus requiring euchromatin configuration. Because remember, active SIR2 on histones can actually generate heterochromatin, which means lower levels of gene transcription, including genes that code for pro-inflammatory cytokines, which can be useful in disease. So that's one kind of pathogenesis, and a disease caused by etiologic agents, excuse me, like pathogens, uh, but also in uh, controlling tumor growth. So you require euchromatin configuration for these pro-inflammatory cytokines and chemokines, but obviously the same event can become the source of a hyperimmune-mediated auto-inflammatory disease response, and that's also common in aging. So you overshoot hyperimmune and hypoimmune, both of which are dysbiosis and relate directly to pathobiochemical, pathophysiological sequelae. So my argument has always been, as a biochemist, looking at clinical research, it is way too simplistic to argue that preventing the decline of NAD would be beneficial. Yet this paper I'm, which we're looking at right now, that's basically what it's pitching. So nevertheless, some will argue that supplemental nicotinamide, nicotinic acid, tryptophan, nicotinamide mononucleotide, nicotinamide riboside, could each specifically or all be beneficial and mostly because of studies done in rodents, both mice and rats. Human studies, when you look at them carefully, have not been decisive for a niacin supplementation, for example, which has been promoted in many clinical studies, in many biomedical studies. 
niacin supplementation for dyslipidemia. If you actually look at those studies carefully, human studies where you've had double blind um, cohort analyses of adding niacin as a supplement, you just don't see a positive effect on dyslipidemia. Let me remind you too of DNA damage response, the DDR. Now the DDR generates, of course, itself a stress signal. And that's subsequently transmitted from the DNA damage cell to an extracellular microenvironment. So the first thing you get is a rapid extracellular DDR signal. And that occurs in response to the DNA damage. And it's going to be transmitted to neighboring cells, adjacent cells. And that's going to be, a, be direct cell-cell interactions. And these are going to be paracrine signals, uh, sensu, strictu. But there's also a late extracellular DDR, DNA damage response signaling. And that occurs because of persistent DNA damage signaling. And it can collectively then initiate the all significant for aging senescence associated secretory phenotype. And this is precisely what uh, we've talked about in great detail and authentic biochemistry, and also in the video podcasts. So this requires in senescent cells, uh, this late extracellular DDR signal coming from adjacent cells, or even nearby cells, not necessarily adjacent, you get a SASP challenging these adjacent and distant cell lineages, and that, that will be a direct readout to in situ DNA damage repair. And it's assumed that this SASP phenomena is to prepare for incoming stress phenomena to otherwise non-stress cells. Okay, now this was all detailed in the paper published in Frontiers in Genetics back in March of 2015, and we talked about this paper. So SASP then can work in two levels, both autocrine, where in a senescent cell, it can prolong growth arrest in that senescent cell. In other words, maintain senescence but it can also ask, act in a paracrine way, that is the SASP phenotype. And what that does is a, is a number of things. It reinforces induction of new senescence. It is a functional and structural remodeling of the tissue. That's what it's involved in. It's associated, most importantly for these lectures, on immune-mediated clearance and tissue repair. This primarily is going to involve macrophages and monocytes, but also dendritic cells and other professional antigen-presenting cells associated with the acquired immune response, particularly T lymphocytes. But also SASP can promote a malignant, that's right, a malignant phenotype when it works in paracrine, which is definitely not a good thing, right? You can see how anything that goes awry because of this enhanced DNA damage enhanced DNA damage repair. And remember, one of the repair mechanisms is going to be the PARP response, right? Polyadenosyl ribophosphorylation of uh, certain kinds of DNA mutational signals. And that itself can then lead to further mutational cell division, which can lead to oncogenesis tumorigenesis. Particularly dangerous, for example, in neural tissue and common as one ages. So DNA damage is linked directly to the SASP expression. And the DDR components 
that is the proteins involved are ATM, checkpoint two, and all the DNA repair and maintenance repair proteins that come together in a cluster called the NBS1. All of that is required for SASP initiation and maintenance. So you get an outgoing signal from a damaged cell, okay? And again, that's in response to persistent DNA segments with chromatin alteration reinforcing senescence. Repeat that. In response to a persistent DNA segment with chromatin alterations reinforcing senescence. That's known as DNA scars. That generates molecular components arising from the DDR cascade, and it leads to a selected transcription factor activation, and therefore an increased transcription of the SAS factors. Now, what are those? Number one, first one, interleukin-6. So incoming damage to an undamaged cell then will relate to the production of proteins from the SASP response, such as TGF-beta. So you get the presence of extracellular TGF-beta in currently undamaged cells that will now reinforce a DDR-mediated P53 activity, and it will trigger the formation of DNA scars Okay, which will give you a subsequently uh, mediated senescent phenotype, including an increased secretion of more SAS factors that will then reinforce as a positive senescent feedback or feed forward loop to yet more adjacent or close to circulation currently undamaged cells. So this, again, works as a chain reaction. That's what SASP does. So SASP regulation then, as you, if you haven't figured out already, is controlled by cytokines. So NF-kappa-B and the SASP initiators in the leukin-6 and particularly also interleukin-1-alpha. And the leukin-1-alpha has its, uh, its own receptor and that drives this SASP response. So once you get interleukin-1-alpha, it's binding to its receptor, and you also have any formation of cytoplasmic DNA, which would be the result of DNA damage, and therefore you're going to be getting coherently a DDR, that will induce NF-kappa-B activation. The DDR pathway, such as the ATM, ATR, the P38 MAP kinase, MAP kinase activated protein kinase 2, which is known as MK2, and of course, the transcription factor known as GATA binding protein 4 will all relate and organize around mTOR controlling interleukin 1 alpha messenger RNA translation. Once interleukin 1 alpha binds to its receptor, it'll promote the recruitment of more interleukin 1 receptor associated kinase, which is known as the IRAC1. And that's going to activate additional downstream factors, including more NF-kappa-B activation. You also get, this should be all uh, a reminder because we talked about this just last month, cyclic GMP AMP synthase. That's called CGAS. And CGAS contributes to the SASP co-associated responses. It does so by detecting that cytoplasmic DNA. So you get the P38 MAP kinase MK2 pathway which is required in order to sustain that SAS response 
in association with sea gas. You also get the CCAAT or CAT enhancer binding protein beta, that's C slash EBP beta, and also a main regulator. It is also a main regulator of SASC, as is um, those factors associated with notch signaling. Remember that notch-induced senescent cells leads to a different type of SASP response. So you have notch working transcriptionally. You have the C slash EBP beta working transcriptionally. And you also have this huge MAP MK2 pathway in association with the C gas. So you have a multitude of transcription factors that are all responding downstream from DNA damage repair. Okay. So some suggest that you can target SASP, and if you can target it, it's a possibility to control aging. Now, again, you know me, none of this stuff uh, actually plays out in true biology. It can do you can do it in cells, you can you can try to form a system in mice or rats by knockout experiments. We try to put this whole thing together in a living human, and you try to um, orchestrate alterations in these nested pathways. What you get are pleiotropic responses, which end up giving you feed forward and, uh, and feedback regulatory components, which either shut down completely, so then you get complete disorganized pathobiochemistry, or you get an overshoot or an undershoot, such as a hypoimmune response or a hyperimmune response. This is exactly what happens in the pathobiology itself and the pathobiochemistry, right? So there are possible mechanisms whereby mitochondria can impact the senescence-associated secretory phenotype. And that's uh, this is a paper that was published in Bioassays, uh, volume 39, back in 2017, so about three years ago. So this paper tries to tell you, again, looking at the NF-kappa-B pathway, triggering then ultimately reactive oxygen species coming from mitochondria via the mTOR system. mTOR system, remember, is once it's phosphorylated, is going to turn on the PGC1 beta-dependent pathway, which induces mitochondrial biogenesis. You know, mitochondrial biogenesis occurs by fission. All of that's going to link up to, a, to the SASP mitochondrial dysfunctional pathway system. So the other major component there is reactive oxygen. Reactive oxygen is going to further trigger this NF-kappa-B control over transcription of SASP genes. You're going to be working with the IKK pathway in the following way. So there are all kinds of ways that mitochondria can influence the development of SASP. You have a positive feedback loop between the DNA damage repair response, the DDR, and the mTOR-mediated mitochondrial biogenesis pathway I just told you about, whereby the mitochondrial-derived ROS, reactive oxygen, are going to replenish more DNA damage foci. So you're going to get more DDR signaling, and that following an initial whatever occurred, such as a senescence-inducing stimulus, such as to say a mutation, or let's say high levels of pro-inflammatory cytokine. So all that's going to be mediated by mitochondrial biogenesis 
through this factor called PGC1 beta. And it's going to involve the DNA damage response kinase, which is known as the ATM. And also because mTOR is involved, it's going to involve AKT and indirectly P13 kinase. So when you get persistent DDR signaling, it'll lead to senescence induction, development of the SASP. ATM will also impact directly on the SASP. And it'll do so because it, remember, is kinase. And it will do so via phosphorylation and activation of a protein we call NEMO. That activates the IKK pathway, which I just started bringing into the conversation. And that results in a nuclear translocation then of this NF-kappa B. That's going to be the, the major factor, it's going to be the major transcription factor for all the SASP-associated components in that cell. So mTOR can actually also work directly to affect SAS by controlling factors that stabilize. Remember, it works at the level of that, that key component between transcription and translation. So it's going to stabilize messenger transcripts, and it's going to influence translatability of early SAS factors, which are all going to modulate or cohere with the NF-kappa-B pathway. Okay. So you get shifts then in the AMP to ATP and ADP to ATP ratios, because this is going to be energy exhausting. That is further going to impact the SASP indirectly because of the other modulators of NF-kappa B. So we're not done yet. This is also key importance here. Sirtuins, as I mentioned many times now in authentic biochemistry, require NAD as their cofactor. And they're inhibitors of the NF-kappa B activity. And they maintain what? Why they, they maintain transcriptionally silenced or heterochromatin. So that means they're regulating gene expression of many of those SAS factors, such as the pro-inflammatory cytokines, interleukin-1-beta, the NF-kappa B itself, interleukin-6, things like that. Similarly, because NAD is involved, Poly-ADP ribose polymerases, those are the PARPs, such as PARP1, you know they require NAD because NAD is the donor, of course, for the ADP ribose. You need to have poly-ADP ribose. So all that's going to be required for the type of DNA repair that is specific to this SASP complex. And it's going to follow what could well be what is known as a genotoxic stress, which means you're going to get mutations. So ultimately what that argues for is that low NAD leads to senescence induction and the SAS development, okay? So you could, you could argue then that AMP-activated protein kinase, which is activated when you have a high AMP to ADP ratio, will then influence the SASP by an activation of yet another component that you've heard many times before, P53, and that will stabilize another protein called P21. And then it will also control the stability of P16 messenger RNA. So you have P53, P21, and P16. All messages are all going to be stabilized because of this AMP kinase cascade. And ultimately, that will result in senescence and further development of the secretory phenotype. Okay. So... I hope you're getting a, a, an idea here about how complicated this system is because this is the key feature we do in, in authentic biochemistry. I, I bring you papers 
papers are published in good faith by reputable scientists. I'm not going to present a paper that I don't think is well uh, reasoned out and well researched and with a decent hypothetical reduction to start with. But I am always going to inf uh, influence you by emphasizing that even many of the papers that are published try to key in on very specific circuits in pathobiochemistry in, for example, hyperimmunity-associated aging, and think they have a key to unlock the dysregulation and therefore to slow down something grandiose like normal chronic biological aging. And I'm here to argue against simple answers like a simple key, like NAD being elevated to control even this, for example, mitochondrial um, induction of SASP. So we're going to get further now into bioenergetics in the next episode. So for those of you that like straightforward, old-fashioned pathway biochemistry, you're going to be right at home next time in Authentic Biochemistry. So this is Dr. Dan Guerra coming to you on the 17th of December. So we're getting really close to Christmas. Make sure you get all your Christmas shopping done. Um, saying bye for now.